Welcome to the Ian Bowsfield Experience. I'm glad you're here. This series of podcasts are just things that come up in my mind when I'm thinking about playing, when I'm thinking about teaching, and general thoughts about music. There are some things here that I hope you'll find really useful. And don't forget, if you've got any comments or if there's anything you want to discuss further, go to ianbowsfield.com. Well, here it is as promised. My Desert Island Discs. For those of you, I don't know whether you are aware of this concept, but in the UK there's been an incredibly long-running um, program on radio, BBC Radio 4, called Desert Island Discs. And every week, a different guest, celebrity, uh, person of note um, from all areas of society in all countries will get together with a host and select their 10 recordings that they would take to a desert island with them if they were shipwrecked and they're allowed a few other things items of luxury um, but it's mainly about what the recordings are and they play excerpts of those recordings so here we go this has been something that's caused me a form of creative block i've been wanting to do this podcast for weeks now and it sent me into a bit of a frenzy of listening and 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 reliving my life and thinking well who am i doing this for am i doing this for students am i doing this for recording geeks uh and then i thought well no it's a desert island disc what would i take now i'm going to start um kind of um, chronologically early on in my life, in my musical development for my first disc. Let's be old-fashioned and call it a disc. <laughs> I um, was born and raised in North Yorkshire. First of all, on the North Yorkshire Moors. I was born in York. We moved to the North Yorkshire Moors, which is where my mum's family comes from, an area called Kirby Moorside, Gillamoor on the North Yorkshire Moors and uh, really genuinely one of the most beautiful places in the whole world. Wonderful. And then we moved to York, Bishopthorpe, just outside York, when I was seven years old. Now, there's a huge connection, and I, I could be very fantastical about this and speculate as to why, but there's a huge connection between the people in the north of England and the, and the, the Nordic music. Um, Scandinavian music. I mean, we are largely up there of Scandinavian descent. Um, I'm probably related to half of Norway. Um, the, most of the villages where I come from have um, Scandinavian names. And um, Bilund. Um, it's in, incredible. You know, the, the, the uh, Lund. Uh, it's just in... It's it's uh, it's amazing. It's 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 in the same way as you would see around Toronto in Canada, all of those village names played out again. <laughs> the Vikings brought them to the north of England, but there's this huge connection and the Halle Orchestra, which of course when I was a kid, the Holy Halle Orchestra, um, it was something of enormous pride to us in the north that you know what was considered one of the world's greatest orchestras came from the north of England and there was a time when I think it was one of the world's great orchestras um, spearheaded, led 
almost single-handedly by Sir John Barbirolli. Now, Sir John Barbirolli of Italian descent was born in London, but he succeeded. He had the great misfortune of succeeding um, Toscanini as music director in the New York Philharmonic, if memory serves right, in about 1936. And uh, following a few years of living under tyrannical rule, <laughs> I think the orchestra exacted its revenge on this young, well-meaning, innocent English conductor. And it was an experience, I think, that he never really recovered from, from what I can tell. He, he sort of... Uh, sort of ran to the far corners of, of the north of England to the Halle Orchestra and turned it into uh, one of the most amazing success stories of, of all time in, in, in classical music. Think um, CBSO Simon Rattle, but probably more, I would say at the time. Think uh, Swiss Romande, Ernst Ansemey, um, think Charles de Troyes, Montreal Symphony, those, maybe that was a lesser extent, but that kind of thing where it's not one of your big hitters all of a sudden he's on the world stage. And it was this famous relationship and he um, gave, well, you know, the world premiere of, of several Vaughan Williams works. And um, when I went to the Halle Orchestra, I've said this in previous podcasts. When I went to the Halle Orchestra, Sir John Barbaroli's ghost was without question still in the building. You could feel him. And they all talked about JB the whole time. And he was universally loved. I never heard anyone say a bad word about him. I heard a lot of funny stories about him. <laughs> but um, I never heard anyone say a bad word. He cared. He cared. When, you know, when, when a member of the orchestra's wife had a child, there were always flowers delivered, delivered to the hospital from JB. Um, really, really, and very fatherly figure um, to the orchestra. Very, very beautiful. Now, um, actually, I will tell you a funny story um, for all of those wonderful things. I'll tell you one, actually, I'll tell you two stories. One, they always said to me, the old guys in the Halle Orchestra, and there were a lot of old guys when I joined there, 1980, I can't remember, 82, 82, 83, something like that. Um, they said, you know, you'd find Bernard Haitink, you'd find the young Zubin Mater, you'd find Daniel Barenboim sitting in rehearsals to learn from the great Sir John, you know. And I got to ask Zubin Mehta, who many of you may not realise actually did grow up in Manchester because his father, and this is not a joke, Meli Mehta, so his dad was called Millimeter, Meli Mehta, very great double bass player in the Halle Orchestra, a very widely respected man. Um, so because of his, his father, Zubin uh, was raised for a good number of years in Manchester. And I said, what was it? What was it that made him so special? And Zubin said, you know, it was just music. It was just music, music, music. It just oozed. That's all he cared about. And that resonates very much with the old stories that I heard from the old Berlin Philharmonic players about Wilhelm Furtwängler. It's just like all he cared about was special, special music, music the whole time. Um, and the other funny stories, towards the end of his life, I think, 
Barbaroli had kind of hidden away in Manchester a little bit. He conducted most of the London orchestras. Um, and towards the end of his life, which was cut short, I think undoubtedly due to a, a quite a serious alcohol issue that he had, um, he uh, was loved, genuinely loved by, um, by the Berlin Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic. And again, when I went to the Vienna Philharmonic in 2000, there were guys who had played for JB um, back in the 60s in Vienna. And they said, we absolutely loved him. We adored him. He was just so musical. He was such a nice guy. <laughs> but he kept going out of rehearsals. He kept walking out of rehearsals. And um, to, <laughs> to refresh himself. And even in the, in the Halle Orchestra, he had a bottle of whiskey by the side of the stage. And uh, so he'd, he'd conduct the overture. This was back in the days when when concerts were overture, concerto, symphony. Remember those days? Probably not many of you do. And so he'd conduct the overture, come back, refresh himself at the side of the stage, go back on, and so on. And now the trombone section back in those days, you know, I mean, there wasn't... There wasn't uh, that much money floating around in the post-war days, so the trombone section realised that there was a bottle of whiskey on the side of the stage. Very often it'd be, you know, a Mozart overture, they weren't in, so they'd get there early, have a, have a glass of whiskey, and then go on stage. And uh, JB cottoned on to this. So um, he kept a, a piece of chalk in his pocket, in his tail's pocket, so he could mark where the whiskey bottle was. But the trombone section got chalk as well, so that was the end of that. Um, Anyway, in um, in Vienna one time, um, they said um, that they went to do a concert in Wiener Neustadt. Even in my time in Vienna, we never played down there. Just at the bottom of Reichenau an der Axte, so like at the bottom of the, the foothills of the, of the Alps. Wiener Neustadt. And for instrument nerds, you will know that's where Vincent Bach came from. So anyone who plays a Bach, he's actually playing an Austrian trombone. <laughs> he went on to do his apprenticeship in Machnerkirchen in Germany and then went to New York. And so they went to do this concert in, um, in Wiener Neustadt. And the Vienna Philharmonic has always kind of flown by the seat of its pants, uh, administrationally and organization sort of thing. And um, <laughs> they forgot to... Uh, book a driver to take him home after the concert. He was so gay in some municipal hall or whatever, I don't know, town hall, call it what you will. And so he sat at the end of the concert in his room waiting for his driver to come and um, the driver didn't come. So he opened his bottle of whiskey and um, there the he was. And the next morning, um, the, 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 the cleaner ran panicking into the boss's Room saying, hey director, hey director, he's giving dang sunlight. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a drunk, there's a homeless person sleeping in the conductor's room. And sure enough, Barbara Olliot was didn't care. He was just sleeping it off in the, So they managed to get him home. Anyway, on to the recordings. Because of the affinity with the North, Sibelius holds a very special place in my heart. And particularly the recordings that were done in Manchester by Barbara Olli is kind of like a soundtrack to my youth. It's almost, I think, to the people in the North, you either get them feeling patriotic with 
um, the Enigma variations or Sibelius too. And they're not totally interchangeable, but close. And I haven't gone for Sibelius too, but my first two discs are both Sibelius symphonies. Um, when people say, oh, it's probably impossible to say, but, but what's your favorite piece? And it's quite easy for me. It's Sibelius Sixth Symphony. I don't know why it speaks to me. It does something to me. It speaks to my heart. It speaks to my soul. It's the the warmth of the north. There's something about the warmth through the cold and the reserved festivities. And um, I got to know this piece extremely well by playing it a lot with Sir Colin Davis, wonderful man. Um, and about the recording 1990, I had to decide between the London Symphony recording 1992 and the um, Halle Orchestra 19, I think 55 it is, with, with Barbaroli. And uh, so I listened to them both and I discovered that the recordings are interchangeable. <laughs> I discovered that Colin was very heavily influenced by John. It's not a surprise, is it? Barbaroli knew Sibelius. And um, I think what the, uh, although the interpretations are almost identical, Barbaroli's is somewhat slower in, in places. Um, they, I think the technical, the slight technical flaws of the Halle Orchestra recording um, mean that I would go to the 1990, I think 1992 London Symphony recording. Um, and also that London Symphony recording has become the soundtrack of many an evening in my life. So, so that's why I'm going for that. The uh, second disc is with the Halle Orchestra and uh, it is Sibelius Seventh Symphony, 1966 recording, I think it is. You know, I once sat through, because despite having a very difficult relationship with Nikolaus Harnakor, as in he couldn't conduct, and I had a big problem with that, because, you know, it's like you only had one job, and, you know, you can't conduct. It's like saying... You know, or so-and-so. Nah, he's a wonderful musician. He can't play the trombone at all. I mean, we'd never get away with it, would we? No, he can't play the trombone, obviously. But he's a great musician. Um, and that was the case with, with Harnacourt. I learned something in every rehearsal from him. Absolutely. I probably quote him with either by acknowledging it or not in every lesson that I give. A remarkable, remarkable uh, musician, researcher, um, Incredible. And the reason why I'm talking about him <laughs> and throwing us off the track of Barbaroli and Sibelius 7 is despite having a reserve, you know, reservations about um, about um, Nicholas Harnikot, in fact, I was sitting next to Rainer Kukel, the great leader of the concertmaster of the Vienna Philharmonic, and there were two people up to be made honorary members of the Vienna Philharmonic and uh, I was sitting next to Rainer and it was proposed the first one was Pierre Boulez 
And he was the only one who raised his hand in objection. It was like, anybody against? And he put his hand up. And I was sitting next to him, and I was pretty incensed. So the next one up for selection was Niklas Hanako. So I put my hand up. <laughs> and he didn't like that either. So, um, however, I once sat through a rehearsal with, what was it? Consentus Wien, is that, that's the name of his orchestra, isn't it? Um, and he was rehearsing Beethoven three Eroica. And for the first time in my life, I had the feeling as though the piece was being composed before my very eyes or ears. It was being laid bare. It was being dissected, but not in a, not in an analytical way. Um, it was just being presented to you for what it was. Everything that you needed to hear, that it was just like, ah, ah now I understand. And that was remarkable. Off onto another tangent, I once said to Michael Tilson Thomas, I said, Michael, come on. I was being a bit provocative. You're not seriously telling me you, you have to, you know, you have to show the audience the structure of the piece. And he said, no, you have to show them the emotion of the structure. Brilliant answer, huh? How about that? They a brilliant, a brilliant answer from a brilliant, brilliant man. Um, they shut me up. <laughs> anyway. The Sibelius 7, 1966 with Barbarolia is actually a brilliant recording for that reason. Back in those days, Sibelius 7 Symphony was not an old and worn out piece of music. There was no, it wasn't the comfy pair of slippers. It was not a matter of fact that it was going to work. It was a mountain that you had to climb, certainly for that orchestra, um, which... Um, despite being a very, very fine ensemble, by today's technical standards, was not immense, to put it mildly. Um, and so it was a, a bit of a struggle for them to understand it, and you can hear them sort of chewing each phrase over and, and wondering about it. And, and it is as, as if the piece is being composed before your very eyes. It's really laid out there. And the journey of all of the recordings of Sibelius 7, that one is the journey. It just makes sense. Now, there are some technical issues in there. Uh, I'm thinking one, I'm going to sing horribly, but there's one bit where the violins go, and in the background, the trombones go, and it's absolutely faultless. And not only is it faultless, it's effortlessly faultless. It's like it's just matter of fact. It's just some of the ensemble playing is stupendously good. And so that's disc number two. And I'd like to, for trombone players listening, when you listen, of course, the solo, trombone solo from Sibelius 7, that's, it, I suppose from our point of view, for me, that is the greatest privilege, was the greatest privilege of my life to play that solo. Um, it was always fun to play Marla III. It was always fun to play Bolero <laughs> after you'd got it right. <laughs> um, but Sibelius Seven, I always sat there with the awareness that this was one of the greatest privileges of our life as trombone players. And... It's like that solo when the trombone comes in, it's the culmination of that, that whole of the, the piece for me. And you can say almost the culmination of Sibelius's symphonic output. 
Now, here's a very interesting piece of information. On that recording, the trombone player, Terry Nagel, um, is notable for many things. Probably most importantly, he was a stretcher bearer on the Normandy landings. In Normandy, he was a, he, he, you know, I mean, can you imagine that? So when you listen to that solo, that guy was a stretcher bearer in Normandy. And that's, I met him. He was a very nice man. Uh, I met him, he was still teaching in Manchester when I started at the Halle Orchestra. In fact, I had one lesson with him. Um, and the other thing was, now, what is that? He was bass trombone. He was bass trombone through the 50s and he got promoted to first. <laughs> he never changed his trombone or his mouthpiece. So he played, I don't know, eight, ten years on first trombone in the Halle Orchestra and he played on a bass trombone. It, it was a single valve um, con. What is it, 72H? Is that what you call it? Or 68? I don't know. I don't know this stuff. Um, but he was a very nice trombone and he played on a Bach 2G. So any of you second trombone players or first trombone players out there who think you're being radical, playing on a bass trombone slide or a size 2 mouthpiece, whatever, get over it. Someone got there before you. He did it in the, in the 60s. And you can hear that. There's a bit of a um on the E natural that you can hear the, the, the trombone's not quite comfortable with what's happening. Um, so... There we go. I think that's this is taking an awfully long time, isn't it? Um, I've been talking about the first two discs for nearly 22 minutes. And I'm going to take a pause there. We've got disc one, disc two. And I'm going to take a pause because I'm browning some beef to make a beef bourguignon in the oven. And I want to make sure that it's not burnt. Maybe the beef bourguignon would want to be one of the luxury items that I could bring. I'll have to think about that. Well, here I am a day later. The beef bourguignon was fantastic. It was very, very good. Um, <clears throat> my um, third disc is um, something very special, very close to my heart. I guess when I go to my desert island, a lot of this is going to be um, to bring back memories. And... Um, when I was in the London Symphony Orchestra, um, we did countless, countless concerts with the great Mislav Rostopovich, um, both as cello soloist and as conductor. Um, and he is another one who unfortunately fell into that category of not really being able to conduct very well. Um, but the concerts were always absolutely bloody extraordinary. Um, he, he was possibly the greatest performer, possibly the greatest musician um, that I ever heard live, to have the greatest effect on an audience, perhaps along with Pavarotti. Um, and in her day, perhaps Jesse Norman. Um, but, um, no, in, I mean, don't know where to start. What a, what a special human being he was um, he was like um, like Leonard Bernstein he seemed to have the ability to do something in any tempo he chose and he could no matter how out outrageous but he could make it, it work and so I've chosen the Borjak 
cello concerto. And for me, the recording wouldn't be so important which one it was. He recorded it lots of times. But I've picked one out here with the London, Philom London Philharmonic and Giolini, quite an old one. And you can find it on YouTube. And it's just so special. I remember him doing, we did the Bojack Cello Concerto with him so many times. And I remember him doing it in the Barbican Centre once in London, in the, when I was in the London Symphony. And it was like a corporate concert, you know, sponsors, all of these people hanging around before the concert, they drunk half a bottle of champagne, they're just trying to cozy up to their boss, they don't really like classical music, they like football and heavy metal and nothing wrong with that either. But they don't really want to be there, they're there because their company, Audi or whatever, has sponsored the concert. And so they're sitting up there in their smoking jackets, you know, sort of starting to doze off. And by the end of the Borjak Cello Concerto, they were up on their feet screaming and shouting. Um, now, for American listeners, I know that kind of happens in, um, um, in, in America anyway. It seems to be uh, what you're supposed to do. In Europe, it's not always like that, you know. I was thinking in America, it looks like there's a mass outbreak of hemorrhoids because you get 2,000 people standing up no matter what happened in the concert. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but anyway, the effect... And, and what he did was he... He was, a, he was a gnarly old professional and he knew exactly what he was doing. He, he told me that on, uh, for a good part of his... Life, he was sent out to Siberia, going visit, going visiting village to village, giving concerts just with his cello. It was probably punishment for having harbored harbored Solzhenitsyn in his attic for a couple of years, which he did. Um, and he said he had to go and play for people. Never mind, they hadn't heard a cello live. They didn't even know what one, what one was. He'd never seen one. And so he said one time he was in like some Siberian whaling village and he said he started playing, you know, some stuff and then some solo stuff for them. And he said this big guy came in at the back wearing a bearskin and he was shouting and pointing and laughing at him. You know, laughing at Rostopovich, thinking this noise coming out of the cello was ridiculous. And he said, he said, you know, I got so angry, I just kept playing louder and louder and louder. And the louder I played, the louder he shouted, and the more he pointed, and the more he laughed. Until I realized that the quieter I got, the more attention he paid to what I was doing. He said, until in the end, this incredible pianissimo. And everyone was just watching with rapt attention and listening to what he was doing. And he learnt that technique, I think we can say quite truly, out on the battleground there. And he used that in concerts for the rest of his life. And you hear that very clearly at the end of this recording. And so when I'm on my uh, desert island, I think that would be something that is really the ultimate, that would really warm my heart. Um, there are quite a lot of funny stories with Rostopovich. He was... But here's a few. <laughs> But before, one as testament to his dedication. I was at um, Michael Tilson Thomas's house, oh, goodness knows how many years ago, but it was towards the end of, of uh, Rostropovich's life, or whenever that would be. Yeah, a year, 18 months before he passed away. And um, so he, Michael was having a few friends around and there was Slava, there was Rostropovich. 
and uh, we were in Miami and Michael had discovered that Rostropovich had just booked somewhere to practice. He would, he'd gone to get away from everything, to go and book a hotel room somewhere just to go in and practice all day, every day, for a week for something that he had coming up. And, you know, that's testament to the dedication, you know. There's another, and, and I want this story to be true. Please let it be true. I hope it's true. That when Shostakovich wrote one of his two cello concertos for him, Rostropovich met with him one day and gave him the score and said, look, come around to my apartment tomorrow and um, we'll go through it. And so... Sure enough, the next day Rostropovich turns up and Shostakovich said, ah, I'll get you a music stand. And Rostropovich said, no need. He'd learnt it in 24 hours. Please let that be true. It's such a lovely story. He had an amazing way of talking as well. It's a... <laughs> sounded very much like that. And we used to play lots of tricks on it. He, he, he used to... If you, when you put a trombone mute in a belt and you turn it around, it sort of goes... That kind of noise. And we used to do it in, in rests, and he always used to shout at the horns for, for coming in wrong. <laughs> um, he, um, Schnitke, Alfred Schnitke, Symphony Number no. 6, Alfred Schnitke, incredible composer, and amazing to smell the lineage going back to Lyadov and Borodin and Kui. Incredible stuff. Um, I think Rostropovich was going through a bad time with the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington when he was music director there. I think they were fighting quite a bit. Um, I think they probably thought he couldn't conduct and he, I don't think, thought they were very good at some point. I don't think it was always working ideally. And uh, so he had Alfred Schnitke write a booby-trapped symphony, his symphony number no. six for the Washington Symphony. And it was this part of it, like it's a concerto for orchestra. And um, he, so there were fiendishly difficult passages for the bassoons or for the clarinets, the whole section. And when we went through the, um, when we went through the first rehearsal, Rostropovich was sort of like watching everyone stumbling over it section by section, you know, and he's sort of, what's the problem? You know, and he's sort of like, and, and I turned over a page and, Eric Kreese was playing third trombone. He said, hey, look, 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 look. And he's like, oh, no, what's this? And it didn't look too difficult, you know. And um, until you see the first and the third trombones are going, and the second and the fourth were going, and it was going, like that. I was like, oh, no. And he said, yeah, right, okay. Eric said, come on, let's both play. So... Quickly looking at my part and the second trombone part, let's play all of it. So second and fourth just kind of like took it a bit easy. And came to it and went and he was looking like stopped, he said, What do you do? What are you doing? Look, nothing, nothing. Again, again, again. And he's looking like confused. What do you do? And, and he, he could tell something was going on, but we weren't going to let up. And um, anyway, he was, oh, trombone, oh, wonderful. Um, 
And um, before the concert, I was, the whole trombone section was called into his room. And you thought, oh no, here we go. 7.15, concert is 7.30. He's just worked out what we're doing. He just worked out we're cheating. And he walked in and said, oh, you thought great. And he's got this big bottle of Stolichnoyer vodka for the trombone section because he was so blown away by what we were doing. Well, wow, great, fantastic, got away with that. We started walking down the corridor and all of a sudden we were aware of him following us, following us and he was saying, no, not now, not now, after, after concert, not now. And all of a sudden he realised he'd given a bottle of vodka to the trombone section 15 minutes before the concert. He must have had some strange experiences with, uh, with trombone section. <laughs> Anyway, I could go on. The stories regarding Slava are endless. An extraordinary human being, extraordinary um, musician. Um, some of the most special moments in my life. And um, so that is disc number three. Dvorak Cello Concerto. London Philharmonic, conducted by Giulini with Rostropovich. Now, I didn't say I only had to take classical music to my desert island, did I? Um, Alan Parsons' project, um, the best of Alan Parsons, um, for some reason, um, this album became really a soundtrack of my life when I was younger. It was really had a profound effect on me. Um, I in the sky, you don't believe, damned if I do, don't let it show, can't take it with you, old and wise. These songs um, had really a haunting effect on me when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and they still do. I don't sort of listen to them that often, but if I was going to be spending some time on a desert island, I guess I would like to have access to that, I need to consider whether there would be other um, discs, other pop music things that I would put on there. One to stand out, um, the um, first Beatles album I got, Help. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe something by Queen. Yeah, ELO. ELO was a big part. Police, Madness, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like going into the 80s with, with my stuff. But if I had to take one, if I was going to be allowed my one luxury pop, as it were, music album, it would definitely be that one from the Alan Parsons Project. So uh, where are we now? That's four, isn't it? I guess as a brass player, I couldn't go my desert island without something to remind me of that fact and I'm struck more and more by as time goes by the pyrotechnics the apparent um, incredible brass playing that we have now but nothing touches me quite like the older recordings nothing I still don't think as brass players we have gone beyond what Maurice André Dennis Brain John Fletcher 
really did. Um, I don't think we've hit those heights musically and I don't think we have the integrity. You know, if you listen to a Philip Jones Brass Ensemble album, the musical, the technical integrity is just incredible. There's so much fancy stuff going on today, but I, I mean, Maurice Andre still for me is the greatest. But I guess being English, if I were to take one brass playing disc to my desert island, it would be the Ron Williams Tuba Concerto with John Fletcher, Andre Previn London Symphony. And I guess a little bit like, uh, you know, get, <laughs> taking a sandwich and throwing the bread away. I just want the filling, just the second movement, just in fact, maybe even just the first phrase of the second movement that, that reminds me of what is possible on a brass instrument. The fact that the man played a tuba, but the instrument was irrelevant. The only thing that counted was the message, the beauty, the elegance, the integrity. He was, of course, a special man taken from us far, far too early. Um, I knew him, I met him in my youth, and he was very, very nice to me. Of course, devastatingly intelligent, go figure. Incredible sense of humor. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to laugh about what to say now. He, had, he, had, he was very, very uh, many talented um, performer. And he, like I say, for all that we think we can do now, um, I don't think we've ever reached those heights again. And I think that the beauty of that Vaughan Williams tuba concerto, it's like bottling what it is to be English, to be British. It's like the pure essence. And he encapsulates that beautifully. Um, because despite having now approaching 20 years outside of living in England, there's part of me, unfortunately, that will forever be English. I'm not sure how proud of it I am right now. But that will definitely on my desert island remind me um, of the England that uh, I think we all love. So there we are. Only five done. And we're 40 minutes in. <laughs> I guess this is my Desert Island Discs, part one, part two to follow. I'm already working on it. Now, on the BBC version of this, you're allowed some luxury items, as I said, um, and a book. Now, the other luxury items I will go through in part two. But my book that I would take, and I don't think that you can, in fact, no, you won't be able to buy this. Here it is. It just happens to be almost permanently with me. <laughs> it's going to surprise you. It's the Sainsbury's Book of Wine from 1987, written by Oz Clark. Now, for those of you not in the UK, Sainsbury's is a supermarket chain in the UK and um, in the uh, 1980s just as I was starting to get in, into drinking wine um, they engaged a former singer actor turned wine taster Oz Clark brilliant man one of us to um, 
sort of be their wine guru and help them choose wines and to write a book. And I think you collected vouchers for this book. And for all of the brilliant wine books and all of the professionals, the, the Broadbents, the Johnsons, you know, you name it. Um, I don't read Robert Parker. Um, for all of that, it runs, it's a close winner for me to Clive Coates. Clive Coates was my uh, Burgundy guru. Um, Oz Clark writes, he draws pictures. He gives you a few words just to describe the atmosphere around a wine, the, 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 the philosophy. He puts you, he can put you, his words can put you on a summer's day in the south of France or in a wine cellar in, uh, in the Loire. He's, uh, he writes so beautifully. And this book I would take to my desert island because with every brief dis description of everything from the greatest wines in the world to French country wines, to a Carmenere from Chile, to a Cabernet Sauvignon from the Margaret River in Australia, he encapsulates in so few words, so many memories and so many tastes. So that would be, if I was alone on my desert island, I would take this book with me. End of part one. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. If there are any issues that you found particularly interesting, don't forget to contact me and always go to uh, ianbowsford.com for lots more interesting stuff.